Jonas, a seasoned long-distance track runner and an originator in the LNG market working for Equinor, Norway's largest company and a critical supplier of natural gas to Europe. We have so much to explore today about the European energy market in the context of energy transition, decarbonization, and on the back of protracted Russian-Ukraine war and a sticky global inflation. All of these underscores the energy trifecta, sustainability, security, and affordability. So before we jump into the topic, uh, Jonas, why don't you give us an intro of your role and uh, what does Equinor do in the in the context of energy market and energy transition. Please go ahead. All right, thank you so much, McRaid. Uh, super happy to be here. Uh, I know you've had some really good guests before and uh, they've been competent in their areas. So hard to live up to that standard, but I'm uh, really looking forward to having an in-depth uh, discussion uh, about this. So uh, I've had a few uh, positions as uh, my journey in, uh, in Equinor. Started out in uh, the market analysis uh, department of the, the company, where I was uh, mostly looking into um, hydrogen and uh, other low carbon solutions, uh, such as uh, carbon capture. Uh, I've been looking at uh, the pros and cons of hydrogen, um, assisting the the projects that we have uh, in that space, uh, where we have uh, grand ambitions, uh, so that's been uh, been really interesting. So uh, Equinor, my company, is uh, as you were alluding to in your intro, um, pretty essential in the uh, the European energy mix at the moment. Um, of course, the Russia-Ukraine war had uh, devastating effects and. Uh, probably lasting effects on the uh, the European uh, energy mix. Russia used to be something like 40% of the gas supply to Europe, and now uh, almost all but that, uh, all, almost all uh, of that has uh, has vanished. Uh, yeah, like a data point I saw was Russia uh, imported to Europe as much as uh, it was produced continental-wide on the Europe land itself so it's it's just you can think of it as an, an another europe yeah um to given its importance yeah enormous and you know the, the european continent has uh, lived pretty well on uh, cheap russian gas for uh, for a long time now and uh, you know being uh, choked off from that uh, has had uh, big effects on on industry and the, the economy as a whole really and uh, it's uh of course, uh, one main contributor to the the inflationary pressures that we've uh, we've seen over the past years, right? Right. So after the war happened, it puts a spotlight on uh, critical, um, consistent supply of gas, as uh, uh, along with other energy sources. And uh, Norway, I think, becomes uh, um, under the spotlight, especially Equinor as Norway's state-owned um, energy player. So uh, what is Equinor and um, what do you guys do now in the, in the global energy context? Yeah, so Equinor is uh, the leading operator on the Norwegian continental shelf, which is where uh, most of the Norwegian uh, oil and gas uh, comes from. Uh, we've been extracting uh, uh, oil and, and gas since uh, 1969, uh, but uh, Equinor came into being in, uh, in 1972. 
Um, before it was called Equinor, it was actually called uh, Stat Oil, um, which uh, means literally state, state oil. oil. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that just uh, underscores uh, how tied it was to the to the Norwegian uh, government. It used to be 100% uh, state down. Now it's also on the stock exchange, so it's uh, something like 67% uh, state owned. So still mainly controlled uh, by the government. And, uh, you know, the, the Norwegian people have a, a big ownership uh, yeah. to the company. And we, uh, we've we created, uh, of course, a lot of wealth through this. Uh, now, it's the biggest, world's biggest taxpayer, as you uh, mentioned to me. Yeah, second, second biggest uh, taxpayer after uh, Aramco. Saudi Aramco. Uh, but, you know, much bigger than something like uh, Apple and Amazon, which has market caps that are like 10 times uh, that of our company. So it's... Yeah pretty extraordinary um a big contribution to the sovereign wealth fund big contribution to the sovereign I wealth imagine, fund which yeah. now owns um about one and a half percent of all of the the stocks in the world um so obviously the the um the petroleum sector has been huge in norway uh, still is today but that being said um equinor and that was one of the reasons why i changed the name from statoil to equinor is trying to evolve into more of a broad energy company rather than just focusing on the uh, extraction of fossil fuels and the and the sale of that uh, around the world. So Equinor's strategy right now is is threefold. Um, we want to venture into uh, renewables. Um, we now have a large stake, for instance, in the. Um, um, in the UK offshore wind market, we're part of uh, one of the biggest wind farms in the world, uh, Dogger Bank. Um, we have been um, important in developing new technology when it comes to uh, floating offshore wind, which makes um, offshore wind more flexible. You can put it where capacity factors are higher. That means it's basically more wind, so you get um, you get energy produced at more times of the day. Mm. Um, okay, so you have the renewables. And yes. what are the other two pillars? The other two the pillars is the um, optimizing what we already have of the oil and gas. And uh, of course, as uh, we were discussing, um, Equinor has become such an important uh, supplier uh, of gas to Europe. Um, and we see the the continued need for, for this energy. People still have to heat up their homes. They have to, um, they have, to have gas for industrial purposes, uh, which is not easily uh, electrified. Something like steel production, for instance, you can't use electricity to, to heat up uh, steel to those temperatures that you need uh, to produce that. Same with a sector like cement, for instance. Um, so we see the need for uh, for those products there. And we see that other parts of the world, too, is has not come um, as far in, in developing, for instance, their, their grids, so they can't handle um, as much of the, uh, the electrical power. And we still need to rely on, um, on fossil fuels. So that's an important pillar. But we also see that from that production, we can uh, we can manage to decarbonize uh, some of the production and find uh, alternative uh, ways to uh, to market those those products. 
And and altogether, these three pillars are sort of coming together in our ambition to um, to become a net zero company by by 2050. Mm. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we won't have any emissions anymore in 2050, but it means that we will, um, in addition to being in renewables, uh, we will capture the emissions that come from uh, um, from our production of of other fossil fuels, uh, either by by carbon capture. Uh, or by um, by investing in carbon offsets. So so just to a quick recap, the three pillars you mentioned were the first was moving into renewables yes. like wind and solar. Second one is to optimize your current productions. Yes. Like we have to keep going to ensure the energy supply, but how do we do it in the most sustainable way? Mm. And the third one, what is the third one? Third one is decarbonizing our existing production. So that is basically, okay, we have these products. How can we make those um, less polluting? How, right. how is it different than optimizing the uh, existing oil and gas explorations? Is, that was the second point, right? Yeah. So uh, part of it, um, because optimizing is more, uh, you know, extracting as, as much as we can and selling as much as we can to, to Europe to ensure that they have the supply we need. Mm. But on the decarboni- uh, decarbonizing side, it's more about, okay, how can we make sure that that production uh, pollutes as, as little as possible? So basically, the CO2 footprint per barrel of oil or per molecule of natural gas, how can we assure that that is as little as as little pollution as possible. Okay, so the second pillar doesn't really have to do with sustainability, but more of the security element. Exactly, security of supply. Got it, so this is a global grant strategy, not just your decarbonization uh, path. No, it's the the whole strategy, uh, strategy of Equinoria. Got it, but definitely the uh, sustainability and ESG rings very loud in Mm -hmm. the the whole um, trifecta there. Yeah, we're trying to cover the whole uh, energy trilemma here, you know, securing as much supply as possible for Europe, making it more sustainable, and also making it uh, more affordable. Uh, and that comes in the in the way of, uh, of having yeah. enough gas to sell into the market. Um, I think while we're on the topic, a lot of the trifectas, trilemmas you mm. learn from <laughs> macro, micro econs, mm. um, are um, I think a common element f- from all these is you cannot have three altogether, yes. right? You you can only choose what to sacrifice um, given the circumstances. So, what are your thoughts and perhaps Equinor's um, uh, offer? What what do they offer in terms of uh, when they get pushed back on? You're imagining you're trying to want everything together now it's really hard to get to that uh, sort of goldilocks uh, point there where you have a little bit of everything Uh, but of course we're trying uh, as best as possible to to get to a point uh, where you know we we balance what we see in the world at the moment and you know the the priorities when it comes to the to the trifecta as you say uh, has changed over time you know before the russia ukraine war um, it was a very much a focus on sustainability, um, especially in Europe, it was a lot of push to to decarbonize, mm. uh, to build out renewable capacity, um, to make the whole economy greener. 
And then came the the Russia-Ukraine war. Suddenly, um, there was a lot of fear that uh, Europe wouldn't have enough energy to, as you say, turn on the lights or uh, even worse, keep on the heat uh, during the winter. So then you move more over to the security side. Suddenly, everyone was scrambling together to to buy enough gas, um, which sent prices skyrocketing. At some point, uh, the gas price in Europe, uh, the Dutch uh, gas, um, had a price tag that was, you know, the equivalent of more than $500 per barrel of oil uh, in energy terms. You're talking about the spot price. The spot or the month ahead price, yes. Because I I think I read most of the natural gas contracts are um, secured for the longer term. And usually it's uh, linked to the crude price. Um, for uh, the LNG markets, that is true. Okay. Um, but in uh, in Europe, uh, a lot of it is uh, sold on spot. Uh, you have you know a lot of forward contracts. You can sell it you know a day ahead. You can sell it month ahead, season ahead, uh, whatever it is. And most of it today is uh, benchmarked to the um, TTF marker, which is the transfer. Uh, Oh, sorry, title transfer uh, facility. Mm. That's what it stands for. And it's like the main benchmark for, for gas uh, in Europe. And that's how most is, is sold. And even mm. long-term contracts would be indexed to that. Yeah. Um, so when, when the natural gas price spiked last year, yeah. I remember um, reading the headlines of um, um, Europe going into recession, um, given the supply shock, um, the supply side inflation, um, a lot of countries are coming up with strategies on how to deal with that, including mm-hmm. um, enforce self-imposed um, consumption destruction or output destruction. Mm-hmm. So you, you you turn off capacities at, at uh, different in- industries, um, um, but also including turning off lights uh, at homes in critical times. Uh, but so far, I, I think last time checked, the gas prices have come down to pretty reasonable levels. Absolutely. Was that just because of the strategies were effective and also there was a mild winter or mm. were there something more at play? Mm. So just to continue that uh, train of thought, right? Mm. We moved then from sustainability to security, right? So everyone wanted to secure. That made the prices skyrocket. But then that led to some serious inflationary shocks, right? And then suddenly there became a lot of focus on affordability. You know, we can't be paying um, what was then 300 uh, euros per megawatt hour, or again more than 500 dollars per barrel of oil for for this price uh, for this uh, gas. That's uh, that's not sustainable. Uh, all right. So then, how do we how do we get the prices down? Well, first of all, we need to to cut demand. Right, and we see that the European demand has been down some twenty percent or something. Uh, right, and that is right. that is uh, industries that have had to shut down. Take for instance um, ammonia production. Right, you need a lot of natural gas um, to to create ammonia, which is then used in in fertilizers. Mm. A lot of these industries uh, just couldn't transfer that price to their end consumers. Um, and then they have to move their production to the U.S., where gas prices are much lower. So that is um, production that is probably permanently uh, damaged in Europe. 
And how how was it determined which industry it had to cut to what extent? Was it very much a top-down decision, and from someone from Europe, when you live through this, was a state at every country、um, the sole determinant of how much production cut there was? A lot of this came natural for economic reasons. You just can't,、uh, you just can't produce at those prices. So there was still the unab- market forces. Yeah, it's the market forces because you're unable to transfer those prices to the end consumers because you just, you just won't be able to to sell your products、uh, at the price that it's marked up that high. So that is natural, but then there's also been policy pushes. Of course,、uh, there's mandated、uh, demand cuts.、Um, there's mandated. Um, storages of of gas so that you come into the winter with、uh, with enough、uh, gas to make it through, and then、um, you know there's also been、uh, a big public push to to lower your own personal consumption. Right,、mm-hmm. I remember there was a lot of statistics about this when the war started. Like you can save. This and that much gas if you just turn down your thermostat one degree or two degrees,、um, so that's that's also definitely helped. And then I would say that Europe was definitely blessed this winter. We got a very warm winter,、um, which you know temperature is probably the main determinant of of the、um, demand for natural gas in the winter.、Um, was it just because of the household consumption, or also? The weather reduces the industrial use as well. That's mainly for heating purposes. So heating is a huge、uh, demand sector for、um, for gas, but also electricity, right? So you use more electricity when it's when it's colder outside. And that、um, that's primarily from the from the household sector, right? Yeah. Okay. So that that greatly helped.、Um, you know, it's not. Given that we'll have another warm winter like that, so we'll see if uh, uh, what happens then. There's always that sort of risk premium on top now that the the market is as tight as it is.、Yeah. As you said, prices have come down to more or less、uh, pre-crisis levels, but you also notice that the market is very skittish. So, no matter if you hear like some news about some possible supply outage in the U.S. or in in Norway or、uh, wherever it might be. You see sudden spikes of of volatility and and price spike, and then it goes back to to normal again once those、uh, those things are debunked or it's it's back to order. So, yes, we have enough gas, but it's not given that we will have enough in the winter if we get the really cold one. Right.、Um, just on the point of demand destruction, I remember the saying goes,、um, the the cure for high prices is high prices. Yeah. Um, you have these market forces at play, plus, at the benefit of a mild winter,、um, so Europe avoided、uh, a really, su- really supply shock that hasn't seen、um, in many, many years in history.、Mm. Um, so I think that could be the reason why, as you said, we're back down to the the pre-war levels of natural gas prices, right?、Mm. Um, So that was a I was I would say a segue, but back to Equinor and、uh, on the track of decarbonization and the whole global strategy shifting、sure. among the three、um, pillars.、Mm. Um, you have renewable energies, and then you also have other ways cap cap carbon capturing,、mm. and, and, and、um, as you mentioned, hydrogen, different things. Yes. 
um, you're innovating. Sure. Can you go into each one of them and talk yeah, about the carbonization? Yeah, let's dig into the, the third pillar of the strategy here, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, something that uh, I think the, the company has a very grand strategy in. Um, which is then, again, decarbonizing the existing production. So how do you do that? How do you lo- lower the footprint of your, the CO2 footprint of your production? One of the things that we've, we've done is, for instance, electrifying all platforms. So we, we use um, electricity, even electricity that we've produced in Norway. We have um, plenty of electricity resources in Norway because we have so much hydropower. We've been blessed with the nature that makes uh, that possible. So we have so many mountains and waterfalls. Um, but we've also created then these own little nodes like the floating uh, wind farm that I was talking about that will be used specifically for the oil platform. So when you then electrify uh, the platforms, then you achieve two things. You get down the uh, emissions on the platforms so you don't have to burn the gas out there. And when you don't have to burn that gas, you can also sell that further. And then you achieve more of that security of supply. So that's one thing that we do to, to decarbonize. We also now had another onshore, uh, onshore um, facility that we, we started to electrify instead of, uh, of using the gas to, to supply the energy there. Um, but then we have a grand strategy in going into new ventures such as hydrogen, as you mentioned and uh, carbon capture. And those two, for us at least, go hand in hand. So let me just take a, a step back. Like, what is, what is hydrogen? Hydrogen, um, you know, as we all know, is, uh, is an element on the periodic table. It's, uh, it's the first one. It's, it's very light, but it's also very, uh, what can you say, explos- uh, explosive. You know, it's very powerful uh, and has uh, a lot of the same properties as uh, you have in, in natural gas. And we see that it can uh, it can work as a pretty powerful substitute uh, for natural gas that in the end won't admit, uh, emit any um, CO2. All right, because when you burn hydrogen as opposed mm. to when you burn natural gas, there's no CO2. Mm. So um, today we... There exists quite a bit of uh, hydrogen production, nothing from Equinor, but there exists in uh, to supply to, for instance, uh, refineries, which is used in some of the refinery processes, but also uh, ammonia production. Uh, so it's a key uh, input to, to produce ammonia. And as I mentioned earlier, that is used again to create fertilizer. So that's, uh, that's an important aspect. Um, so but, how are we extracting hydrogen so far? Is it just an element in the air for the existing um, use of hydrogen? Where does it come from? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a key point because the current production of hydrogen, even though the end product is clean, the production of it is not. Because what, how we produce hydrogen today is that we take natural gas and then we send it through a reformer and then we split it uh, into uh, hydrogen and um, CO2, mm. right? And then at the, at the moment, you're releasing that CO2 into the air. And that um, we have a certain terminology for the production of hydrogen, which is split into colors. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, hydrogen itself has no color; it's it's, it's transparent. Uh, mm. uh, so people get confused when you throw around these these colors. Um, but the main colors we're talking about, first of all, is is gray hydrogen, and that's just the pr- uh, production method that I described now. Right? Okay. You split natural gas and you release the CO two. Okay. Then we have the hydrogen that we have the best. Um, uh, you know, way to produce from Equinor itself because we have natural gas. We can do that process, but what we want to do is capture the CO2. All right. So, so you have the same production uh, method as before, but you attach this uh, type of solvent that you can attach the CO2 uh, to when uh, when it comes out of this uh, production. So, is and this is this the green hydrogen? If I have to guess, because it sounds like. No, this is the blue hydrogen. Okay, so there must be an even greener way ah, of producing we'll, hydrogen. We'll get there, we'll get there. So <laughs> okay. basically, you capture the CO2, and then you send it in pipes, and we send it down to old uh, reservoirs. So where we have previously extracted gas, we can put uh, CO2 into. So we can use uh, basically our competitive advantage uh, in that space. And we've already now built out a project called uh, Northern Lights, uh, where we're already going to take some of that CO2 and store. Uh, But we have ambitions of uh, greatly expanding that. So that's the the blue hydrogen. Okay. And then you have the green hydrogen. And the green hydrogen is a very different process. Green hydrogen, you use electricity and you send it through what is called an electrolyzer. And in the electrolyzer, you have um, you have water, and when you send the electricity through it, you can split the water H two O into hydrogen H two and O oxygen. Right. So the the byproduct there is not CO two. In that uh, that process, the byproduct is is oxygen. Mm. Right. So that's a very green process. You don't have to store anything, the oxygen you can just let go without uh, uh, any problems. So the then, the, the, well, the, my first question is, is there uh, any other source of hydrogen uh, besides natural gas, where all the current hydrogen comes from natural gas? You know, uh, hydrogen is a very reactive uh, molecule or, uh, or atom even, so it will always try to attach something. So you won't find much of it naturally occurring. You will find some, but uh, but uh, not much. Okay, so, so you will have to produce it from something else. It's a, it's a hyper, hyper social teenager. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it will <laughs> well, attach to whatever it is. Uh, okay. So basically, uh, that's why we like to call uh, hydrogen not an energy source, but mm. an energy carrier, because mm. you have to put something into it. To, for it to react. For it to store that energy, okay. right? So, okay, so you have these production methods. Um, so then back to the question, why yeah. are we not doing the third one? Why are um, we not doing the third one? Yeah. As much as we can. It, what, what are the bottlenecks? Because it sounds too good to be true if we don't have to generate CO2 for us to obtain uh, energy. Mm. Yeah, so um, the, the first answer to that question is um, happy news. Equinor is actually investing in the green one too, just not as much as blue hydrogen where we see that we have more of a competitive advantage. Um, second is if we're going to scale 
the hydrogen production, if we're going to scale this to become an actual market, we need all of the different uh, options to, to create enough for this to actually make sense. But then you can also say, okay, but why don't you just put all resources into green hydrogen? Well, green hydrogen also has some challenges. First of all, you know, we need electricity for it to ma make it work. Now, where do you get that electricity from? For it to make sense, you should probably then build out new, um, new capacity in electricity, because it doesn't really make sense to draw from the power grid and then create uh, green hydrogen and then using that again to, I don't know, create new electricity, right? Then you, you would rather, for instance, um, you know, build an offshore wind farm or a solar um, power farm or something like that and then send that electricity from that dedicated source uh, into into the electrolyzer and create it like that. But are you uh, on net gaining more energy after all? Because you can also directly channel the wind farm energy electricity produced into the end use exactly. rather than through yeah. hydrogen. So that's another problem there. So if you're producing electricity in the first place, why don't you just send that into the grid instead of um, instead of producing hydrogen from it? Right. Well, one answer is, as we alluded to earlier, um, there are certain things that you can't electrify. So you would need um, alternative forms of energy, for instance, in steel production, uh, in cement, in other heavy industries. Uh, those you can't electrify. So you would have to have something. You can use natural gas, but that, uh, of course, also emits some, some CO2. So then you can use this green alternative. And how do you do that? Well, you can, you can produce it in any of the ways uh, that I described before. So that's one reason. Um, but then um, going back to the point. So in, in producing that, then there are also a lot of inefficiencies that makes this uh, this difficult and and also economically right why would a producer uh, pay to send that through uh, through hydrogen instead of, of selling it in a wholesale market so I think um, actually you're touching on a very important point I think um, green hydrogen is probably something that makes more sense when you have a better built out capacity of renewable in in the system hmm. right because first we need to focus on decarbonizing the grid we still use a lot of uh, coal even in europe we still use a lot of natural gas um, so first we need to replace those sources by clean sources before we start think start thinking about okay let's uh, let's create hydrogen now where you can really see a um, useful purpose for for green hydrogen is for it to function sort of like a battery. So if you have the option to send either the electricity into uh, to the grid or to hydrogen production, then you have that uh, optionality. And now um, we see at some points the um, the electricity prices will uh, become uh, negative. Um, and in those times, of course, it doesn't make economical sense to um, 
to sell the power, but at the same time, it costs it could cost money to turn off your production. So what do you do? Well, then you send it into the electrolyzer, you produce uh, some hydrogen, and then you use that power again when renewable output is low, mm. right? When you will need alternative sources. So then you sort of have that kind of battery. You mm. store energy in hydrogen. So instead of um, trying to build out huge battery batteries using uh, lithium and all of the materials that you need in in that, you can you can use that. But then again, that comes at a cost. So I think this is something that is further uh, down the line when the when the system is really uh, well supplied with electricity. Um, is there any risk to storing hydrogen? Yeah. So that's uh, that's another thing you need to have. Uh, precautions on the safety. You know, everyone thinks, well, at least I, I thought about this when I first heard about hydrogen is Hindenburg, right? The the big, uh, you know, floating uh, ship that used hydrogen and then it caught fire and you can have uh, pretty, pretty bad explosions. Mm. Now, of course, there, um, y- you, you will have these uh, safety measures in order, but if something happens, then that could really... Uh, give a hit to the to the trust that people have in it, right? You don't want to uh, have it in your backyard uh, in that sense. You don't want to have it as you're heating if you know that this can explode at any time. So that's something that needs to be uh, properly accounted for. And then you have a problem of, of leakage because this is such a small molecule. Mm. So you would have to alter the, the infrastructure so that it doesn't escape from from the pipes or in the basically the connections between the pipes. And then lastly, uh, even though um, hydrogen doesn't emit any CO2 when you burn it, it could have a greenhouse effect if you release it because it can react with other greenhouse gases and make those more potent. So that's also something to keep in mind. You need to have it safely stored and not let it out in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So if we uh, step away from the laboratory for a second, yeah. back to the uh, the maps of uh, great European continent, if you're yeah, looking yeah. at this as a realistic alternative or sure. even 10, 20 years down the line with a greater renewables grid, mm-hmm. um, how will that change the uh, geopolitical structure underpinning um, the European continent today? Are the players that are supplying natural gas also uh, equal, are they equally advanced in terms of hydrogen, in terms of all the other alternative energies? Mm-hmm. So of course here you have an uh, an aspect of energy security, right? Yeah. If you could produce uh, hydrogen within Europe, then you would be less dependent on other sources such as Russia or the Middle East or um, anywhere else in the world, the U.S. for that matter, right? Um, but as we also described, uh, to make blue hydrogen, you still need gas, hmm. right? So you still need that source. You're still heavily reliant. Uh, on Norway for that, if you want to produce that in a in a grand scale, for uh, green hydrogen, that you could produce with your own sources, but also, um, are you going to be able to uh, build out your renewable 
uh, to the extent that you can that that green hydrogen would actually make sense. So green hydrogen doesn't depend on natural gas. It does not. It depends on uh, on renewable capacity. Right. Electricity produced by renewables. Yes. Okay. Of course, you could make it with electricity produced by other sources as well, but then you're back to square one, and yeah. it's just as polluting as as before. And that's going back to the shades again. You know, you have you have green hydrogen, but then you have sub subcategories of that, that which are not so uh, so green. So, for instance, in in China, they've had some test cases now with these electrolyzers on. Um, you know, a hundred megawatt type scale, which is by far the biggest that we have uh, in the world right now. But the problem with that is they just have a very small solar farm and then the rest is supplied by the grid. Mm. And, you know, what are the main sources of uh, of electricity production in China? It's uh, it's coal. coal. Yeah. So in the end, it's uh, it's not very clean and it doesn't really make sense. Then you might as well um, you know, because of the inefficiencies you have in the production of that, you might as well um, create that um, uh, hydrogen in the old-fashioned way and release the CO2 there, and it would be cleaner. Uh, so that doesn't really make sense. Um, so that's that's a big problem. And we've we've looked at some some thought experiments when it comes to okay, can can Europe come to a point where um, where it can produce so much hydrogen that this uh, is actually helping in its energy security way. Well, today in the world, you produce something like 100 million tons of of hydrogen. And if you want to produce enough um, hydrogen uh, to just replace half of that, you would need to use all of the renewable capacity you have there in the world. So that's how uh, how difficult it is to make it from hydrogen. And why is that? Well, it's because you have such uh, inefficiencies in this. So, you know, first of all, you start out, you have a wind farm, right? Mm. And the wind farm might have, uh, let's just uh, use um, uh, 100 megawatts, right? Um, doesn't matter the unit, but it's say it's 100 megawatts. But then, because the um, the wind only blows, say, 30, or if you're very optimistic, you can find a really good spot uh, in the sea with floating uh, offshore wind, say you get 50, right? So 50% only of the time there, you can produce it. Hmm. But then you send it through the electrolyzer, and in that process, you're also losing 30% of the energy. Right? So in this whole process, you have a very inefficient uh, value chain. So in the end, you would you would have to have so much capacity that you know you would build out um, yeah twice as much renewable capacity as as you have today. So just on that thirty percent energy loss, is it is the loss from the transmission from the the wind farm to the electrolyzer because it takes uh, electricity to transmit it, right? That's mm. where the thirty percent comes from. That's part of it, but it's mm-hmm. also also just uh, the process itself. You have uh, you have energy losses in the the chemical process of it. Mm. Can't give you the exact answer there. I'm no no chemist, but there are definitely some some losses just on the on the process. Okay, there. so you're saying if we were to replace all the current hydrogen production with mm. green hydrogen yeah. or um, green hydrogen, then we need twice or um, 
twice as much renewable capacity, or at least wind and solar, as you have today. 100% operating at uh, full capacity, operating full utilization. F- yes. So that's uh, that's quite an insane number. And then so, you know um, you could you could uh, foresee a future where we uh, build out a lot of renewable capacity, but it just uh, you would have trouble fitting it all in Europe, right? Europe is a very densely populated uh, continent. Uh, and then you have local politics that ruin for things like onshore wind. Mm. Not a lot of people want windmills in their backyard. Um, and a lot of lot of parts of Europe, you guys don't get the most sunlight. That uh, is true. The year. In the winter, you know, you have parts of Norway where we don't get sun at all. Yeah, all right? it's not super efficient. Um, but then you could foresee something like, okay, what if we um, sort of export this? Um, we we or we put the um, production of hydrogen somewhere else, like um, like in the Sahara Desert, right? Yeah. Where you can you have a lot of space, you don't have a lot of people um, living um, in the in the desert, um, and you could you could have some of the best uh, capacity factors in the world when it comes to solar. Mm. Some places in the Sahara Desert you can get up to um, 25 to 30 uh, percent uh, capacity factors. So that's that's pretty solid, right? So if we just leave out the whole point about, you know, would uh, Algeria or Libya or some of these countries actually allow you to build there? Um, you know, that's, that's up to them. But say that they did. Um, how would you transport that electricity to, uh, to Europe? You can have transmission lines, obviously, but there's a, there's a lot of inefficiencies in that. And that's where some people then have proposed, okay, how about we do this with green hydrogen, right? We produce a lot of uh, electricity there, and we have these electrolyzers, and we produce a whole lot of hydrogen. But then again, 30% capacity factor is uh, very small compared to the 100% that you get from you know, burning something like gas and, and producing power from that. So already you're losing 30% there. Mm. And then you have the the thirty percent, or sorry, you're losing seventy percent of the whole potential in a way. Mm. Uh, and then you're losing your thirty percent again in the um, um, in the transformation to hydrogen. And then you have a problem. Okay, so how do you get the hydrogen to Europe? Um, and that's a that's a difficult one because yes, you could in a way ship it. But how do you ship it? You can't have it as gas. You can't have this uh, contained as gas. You could make it liquid, just like you you transport uh, natural gas in the form of LNG. Mm. Um, but LNG only needs only needs to be cooled down to uh, minus 160 degrees. Mm. Hydrogen, on the other hand, because it's such a small element, you need to cool it down to minus 250 degrees. That's very close to the absolute negative temperature. So and that's, the cooling process definitely requires a lot of carbon uh, emission. Yeah, carbon emissions or, you know, you lose so much of the hydrogen, yeah. right? You can use some of the hydrogen in that energy process, right. right, to cool it down. But then what are you left with? Yeah. Okay, so what else can you do? You could um, have so-called organic carriers. So, c- for instance, you could... Um, 
take the hydrogen and then you can create ammonia instead. So you're, you're pairing it uh, with other elements and then you're creating ammonia. And ammonia only needs to be cooled down to something like minus 30 for it to be, uh, be transported in liquid form. So that's a good one. But then, of course, again, just as when you transform electricity into hydrogen, when you transform from hydrogen to ammonia, you also lose some energy. And then you lose when you use some of it as fuel to Europe. And then if you want it in hydrogen form, you need to crack that molecule again. You lose some energy there. And then what are you doing with the, with the hydrogen in the end? Are you burning it? Well, you lose something in that process as well. And then it's electricity again. And what are you left with? Something like 20% of your original energy. Yeah, so so given kind of a dire picture you painted with all the bottlenecks and constraints, so in your view, what is the best way forward um, for an oil major like Equinor to decarbonize, to reach the goal of um, zero carbon? Mm. I think uh, what's really important to keep in mind is that for the energy transition, there are no silver bullets, right? We need just every tool that we have in the toolbox. And we also need to be very open about uh, new possibilities. When we see new development in technology, we need to be there and we need to be able to, to see those opportunities and invest in them if there are any, right? But we need to then keep, um, uh, keep investing in, in renewables because we need to clean out the grid as it is today. We still have too much natural gas and coal uh, in the system. And those should only be used in the times when they're actually needed because of the seasonality in renewables. So that's, that's a, a big priority. But then we also need to keep focusing on actually producing, um, producing that, uh, those fossil fuels that we do extract those and that we have left. Because um, first of all, we see that the world needs it. The world is still uh, hungry for those products, but also because we believe that it has a place in the energy transition. Natural gas is much cleaner than, for instance, uh, coal, right? So we need to, first of all, in Europe, push out uh, all of the coal, but we also need to do that in, in other markets. So in Asia, for instance, as we talked about earlier, uh, a lot of the power mix is still, um, you know, dependent on coal. So if we can, if we can get, uh, you know, those sixty percent coal out of the Chinese power mix, for instance, then we've, you know, we've achieved so much more um, than by going from natural gas to to uh, renewables in that or to green hydrogen, for instance, in those last instances that you really need it in Europe. So why hasn't the world shifted away from uh, coal, given uh, we've been uh, using natural gas for so long. It's not a, any advanced technology. It's not a new discovery. Mm. Is it just the prices? You know, because as we said, the the cure for high prices is high prices, but also the constraint for elimination of these sources, also the low prices. Mm. Um, part of it, again, is uh, going back to security of supply. Right. So, for instance, for China, uh, they have their own uh, coal mines. They're, they can extract that much more cheaply than uh, natural gas, which for the most part, they also have some domestic production, but for the most part, they have to, uh, to import. Uh, 
Mm. They have to buy it from uh, either from uh, from Russia through their pipelines or, or SLNG. Mm. Um, now, I, I think sustainability hasn't become uh, at the forefront until fairly recently. So I think before that, other than, um, you know, for local air purposes, it's probably not been the main priority to shift away from it. Mm. Um, but then now recently too, I think the the Russia-Ukraine uh, war really has had a devastating effect on uh, on the transition from coal to gas, exactly because of this these uh, price spikes that we saw last year. You know, you don't want to be bound to a commodity uh, that is that volatile. So that's somewhere that we need to show. Okay, we're we're a reliable supplier of this, and um, and because we we keep our production there, you don't have to be. Um, you know, that afraid that uh, mm. this is going to be such a scarce product that you would have mm. to pay. So can we talk about LNG? LNG for a second. Sure. I think, uh, as you mentioned, a transmission or transport of uh, energy source mm. is a critical issue um, to resolve the uh, some of the challenges with energy transition. And I think mm. LNG, um, liquefied natural gas, is... Uh, uh, transportable form of natural gas, right? Can yes. you just give us some, maybe a crash course 101 on what it is? And yeah, so uh, is there any potential from LNG? I think there's a uh, huge potential. So just let's quickly take the value chain, right? Like you, you extract the gas, um, but then maybe in your uh, isolated market, you might not have enough demand for that gas to be used. So what you do then is you want to transport it to a market where it can be used. A typical example now is the US has a lot of extra gas, especially after the whole uh, shale revolution. Uh, they have um, very high reserves of, of gas. Uh, so their prices are much lower uh, than what you have in Europe and what you have in Asia. So what you would do then, you extract the gas, the gas go through pipelines, and then the LNG producers would buy the gas from the pipelines, and then they would compress it, liquefy it, and put them on ships. And then you have then the option to send those ships to to where it's uh, most highly priced. On the other side, for instance, when you come to Europe, um, for it to be used afterwards, you need to go through a so-called uh, regas terminal, mm. right? Because you can't use it in liquid form. You can use it as fuel in some ships and stuff like that. But for those purposes we talked about earlier, you need it back to gas. Right. And that was a big um, sort of uh, bottleneck in the beginning of the crisis. And something a lot of people were talking about that this could be a problem. That even um, if we can buy enough LNG from the U.S. to cover for the lost uh, Russian supply... You know, it would stop at the shores because we can't regas it and get it into the system. Right. But that's a point where Europe has been extremely successful since the crisis started. They they really got to to push for these new regas terminals. And for instance, in Germany, you got three up and going in in just that year, and it's really, you know, removed that bottleneck. So were these new projects that were uh, built from scratch? Some of them uh, were built. Well, all projects that were started again, uh, built from scratch. But then you also have these type of floating um, regas terminals hmm. that you can 
shift from where you uh, where you really need them, so you could transport mm. it from from somewhere else. Mm. Um, so that was a successful push. Yeah. Yeah, because I I remember reading about how a lot of the capacity of regasification is only theoretical because of mm. the mismatch of demand and um, and and where the capacities are. Yeah. A lot of it was from Spain, I think, that, that where you see yes. the the gap. And uh, but I think that's very insightful. You mentioned how different countries acted quickly. Yes. Uh, was it a coordinated effort, or did you see a scrambling? Somewhat a coordinated effort, but um, again, as you were saying, the original regas capacity that we had before this um, was very uneven. So in Spain, yes, you had uh, a lot of regas. Uh, in Italy, you had some. In France, you had some, and in UK. Um, but Germany, for instance, didn't have any because they had been so dependent on on Russian gas. They didn't mm. feel the need for uh, for LNG coming in because they had plenty uh, coming mm. in through uh, through Nord Stream. Um, so they really had to uh, to push hard for this to get in. Uh, I think a great example is uh, Lithuania, uh, which of course is a neighbor of Russia. Um, they found out early on that they are in a you know vulnerable position because of their proximity to to Russia. So they decided very early that okay, we're gonna buy or we're gonna construct a regas terminal in case something like that happens. And that uh, terminal is uh, is actually called Independence. So it's it's kind of symbolic in that way. So mm. they're they're one of the sort of the shining examples there. And then they could take in their the, um, the cargoes coming in with gas there. And then since they're a small country, they can also then redistribute some through their pipeline system to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And where did the additional LNG exports come from? Was it mostly from the US or uh, from, from, from Norway as well? Yeah. yeah, so, and that's the problem here. Um, well, first of all, you know, Norway, uh, we did manage to increase some of the production but it's it's limited how much, right? So we got some extra licenses so that we could uh, push out more gas, but um, that couldn't at all fill the hole that that Russia uh, left behind. So we became the biggest supplier, but the increase wasn't enough to cover that. So then you would have to have this uh, additional supply, um, and that was mostly covered by uh, U.S. cargoes. Hmm. But then you're saying, okay, did you? How did you increase that supply? Well, the supply into Europe was certainly increased, but we also have to think about this a little bit because construction of of new uh, LNG terminals takes some time. So in this moment, um, you know, because Europe got more, that also means someone else got less, mm. and that's all up to pricing, right? Because Europeans they were able to to pay up for this. That means there are other places in the world where you couldn't get this. So we have to think like uh, countries that already have little got even less during the crisis. So, you know, this is a European-centered crisis, but still it hurt countries like, you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, India. These countries that would have normally taken that would then have to switch back to to coal instead. Hmm. So you're sort of just like switching the problem from one place to another. Yeah, so because of the supplies are changes much less than than the um, 
the shifts between the demands, right? So mm. when you have a spike in the demand for LNG, um, even if you increase uh, production, yeah. there's still losers that uh, miss out on mm. this. Um, exactly. But I'll just on the note of developing countries, I think um, when it comes to oil, I think some of the Russian oil, uh, despite the uh, different uh, layers of regulations of bans, it still ended up in the hands of China and, and India, mm-hmm. and and they're very um, vocal about it, and also um, doesn't hide the fact that we are buying Russian oil, given it's trading at a discount yeah. when avail- affordability is is a priority. So, are you seeing the same happening in the gas market with Russia as a supplier of LNG? Mm-hmm. Um, as a form to um, replace its lost revenue from from the gas pipelines to Europe. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if we just start first with the with the oil there, that's that's totally true. And India has been able then to uh, buy a lot of this Russian oil at the discount. Uh, but you have to also put yourself in the in the position of India, right? As I said, of course, um, Indians would still have sympathy with what is happening at the war in um, between Russia and Ukraine. But at the same time, uh, there's still a lot of poverty. There's still a lot of uh, people struggling right. in yeah. India as well. Um, so why would they also then suffer from this when they can then get this uh, cheaper um, source of energy? All right. So you have to, to see it from that way. They have to secure their supply and uh, if that su- uh, supply comes from from Russia, then then so be it in that way. Um, so did Russia really take advantage of this opportunity to increase their uh, LNG shipments to these developing countries? They're looking for more affordability than well. When say, it comes to LNG, uh, LNG story is a little different because there are no currently at least no bans on Russian LNG okay. uh, as opposed to to the oil. So there are still uh, and this is the ironic part, even though the gas isn't flowing through pipes from Russia into Europe, you still see a lot of cargoes coming from uh, uh, coming from Russia to, to Europe. So I read something like Russia was the second biggest LNG supplier to, to Spain uh, some of these summer months. Right, so was it because of political gridlock? I'm sure the politicians saw this uh, loophole, right? Mm. Well, I don't. Uh, I think from the start, uh, Europeans have had to be, if not pragmatic, then at least have to look the other way when it comes to gas because they need the gas and yeah. they need it to be at a uh, decent price. So then they've uh, then they've decided to take that. Now, now the prices have gone down a bit to uh, to those um, more like pre-crisis uh, levels. Then there's been more talk, especially from countries like. Uh, Netherlands, uh, some other countries too, that, okay, should we put in place uh, a ban on Russian LNG as well? But I'm pretty sure if uh, if then in the winter, it becomes a cold winter, prices spike, then those, uh, those policy moves will probably die down pretty quickly. Mm. So that's the thing, like... But Europe had be- a year to prepare for it, right? It's not 2022 20, anymore. Mm. Um, we've had a a year to to shift the supplies to yes. build up additional capacity to maximize the the demand um, uh, austerities. So, mm. should we be as 
scared of a cold winter that's upcoming than than 12 months ago? Not as scared. Uh, and one of the factors for that is that storages in Europe now, which is probably the number one macro factor you look at uh, for the European gas market, are now really full. We're something like 85 to 90 percent full already, and that's far above where well, first and foremost the requirement they put in place is, uh, but also at historical highs, uh, really. So when you have high storages, then you're more comfortable going into the winter. But you've also seen that, um, you know, you have limited storage. So even if you fill up your capacity to the fullest, that's that's the ceiling in a way of what you have. So uh, you have. Um, we're talking about natural gas, right? We're talking about natural gas. Does yeah. it expire? It doesn't. It doesn't expire. No. Okay. So it, it's it's safe in, in those uh, in those caverns and it's not and like spaces. milk if I. <laughs> If I store like a fridge full of milk, it's not going to last me. No, it doesn't year. come out with a uh, couple less uh, megawatt hours or something like that. Gas is yeah. gas is gas, and it's it's fairly straightforward okay. uh, to to store it. We've done it for a long time, so I think that one is fine. Um, but the capacity is limited. So, for instance, the the German hub operator, so the the um, operator of the German. Uh, um, storage and pipeline system. They've uh, they've uh, done some scenarios on this, and they see if it becomes a really cold winter, we will have a, still have a big problem. So we're not out of the woods because the market is still very tight. Hmm. So in the event, uh, yes, we're better prepared for this. I think Europe has done a, a great job in addressing this, but at the same time. Um, we would need a lot of LNG in the winter if it becomes a cold one. Mm-hmm. And um, if we may go out of the topic of energy a little bit and focus more on the the underlying crisis in Ukraine, um, sure. how big is energy a factor in uh, EU leaders' thought process on assisting uh, the effort um, in the war front? Uh, because there are different calculus at place, right? And I think it's a very complex issue um, given different um, uh, stakeholders. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me, of course, to answer directly that, but I think you can see that um, even if the war had ended tomorrow, I don't think you could end up with a, say, the normal relationship uh, with Russia anytime right. soon. Um, and that also extends to to the gas market, of course. Now you have some lasting damage because uh, you know some of the main pipelines from Russia to Germany was blown up last summer, right? And that hasn't, because of the ongoing crisis, that hasn't been uh, repaired at all. I'm bringing this back to energy, but uh, basically. Um, you probably won't have flows back to pre-crisis levels at any time soon, no matter how this uh, this war develops. Then you, of course, also have very different interests uh, backing this war, right? So, sure, Europeans uh, would, of course, um, be very uh, keen to to get this ended as as soon as possible and and you know get access to to more energy but at the same time us is also a big backer of this and they've been able to 
to sell a lot of, of LNG in this process. And I'm not saying, of course, that uh, America in any way would prolong the war because of this, but um, but at least maybe they have more leverage on their side to um, uh, to not go in with uh, compromises for Ukraine that uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's fair. That's that's a great point. I think uh, we've covered a lot of grounds today, um, but there's one lingering. Um, topic I want to explore with you further, which is um, if we imagine the world uh, already shifted away from fossil fuels, I think yeah. one of your points is geopolitics is here to stay. Yes, um, for sure. I think it's a known fact that um, resource is uh, can be a curse um, yeah. to bring violence, to bring um, uh, upheavals, um, political instability. Um, but in a world of renewables, uh, hydrogen, why do you think that geopolitics is still here to stay? So, you know, today you have uh, in the oil market, geopolitics is, is everything, right? Maybe less so than before because you've gotten this balance by the U.S. now being a net exporter instead of a, a net importer. But it's it's still very much at play. OPEC is a, is a big force uh, Russia has shown uh, with the crisis now that it could, um, you know, uh, during a cold winter choke choke off uh, Europe in a way and and really um, uh, devastate it economically. Um, so one of the uh, reasons why uh, renewables also uh, has been pushed so hard is, you know, of course. It's the, the climate aspect of it, but it also is to bring um, electricity production, energy production uh, more locally, right? So you're onshoring uh, your energy production so that you can get less dependent on uh, other sources. So that could then decrease the geopolitical, uh, geopolitical factor. Um, and that is true to a certain extent. The production of it, yes, would be locally. But how are you making uh, these solar panels? How are you making these windmills? Well, you need a lot of minerals. Hmm. And I think this is something that has become more evident lately is, okay, where are these value chains uh, located? Hmm. And when you look at the key minerals going into these um, production facilities, they're much more concentrated. Uh, than what you what you have with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, to a certain extent, almost all continents have some some sort of their own production, mm. right? But when it comes to things like lithium or copper, even mm. those things are very concentrated. Mm. So you know, uh, copper, for instance, you will need. Um, I saw a statistic on this that you will need as much copper as has been produced throughout history again, to uh, realize the energy transition. And where does the copper come from currently? A lot of the copper is coming from um, from Chile, for instance. Mm. Um, and, you know, you have production of these other minerals in uh, places like in, uh, in Congo, for instance, mm. has a lot of these rare earth minerals. Mm. And, lithium. Yeah, lithium, for instance, yeah. yeah. And uh, other rare earth minerals are very concentrated in China. Mm. But that's just the first step of the yeah. uh, 
uh, value chain, right? So, okay, it's already very concentrated on that step, but then you need to refine those products before you can actually use them right. uh, in the facilities. And that's when it becomes really interesting because on all of these, like for instance, the rare earth minerals, China has 90% dominance in, in those refineries. And that's been a more or less conscious policy choice by Europeans and Americans before. First of all, it's been cheaper, but also because there's a lot of toxic byproducts that come from these refining processes hmm. um, that if you're going to handle in a safe way would be very expensive. So there again, it's one of those um, look the other way type of processes. We can offshore this production or refining uh, hmm. very um, uh, very cheaply. So we'll do that. But now we're waking up to the realization then that we're, def we're dependent on just a very few countries in order to achieve this. Like uh, Indonesia in terms of Nicole, um, because in, in this part of the world, you know, um, Indonesia is pushing very hard at going downstreaming mm. um, in a way, uh, tr trying to um, gain its geopolitical upper hand in the in the upcoming age of uh, renewables as yeah. well, given Nicole's importance in the EV uh, supply chain, the battery production. Exactly. So, um, so, so that's the thing. Like, and I'm not um, singling out China as a country, for instance. Right? Yeah. It's not that uh, that specific country is a problem, but the problem is when something comes in the hand of one country. Doesn't matter which one. That poses a huge risk. Right? Even if it was Norway, then the whole world would be dependent on Norway keeping their their shit together, for lack of a better word, right? Mm, mm. If uh, so much of the copper production is in, in Chile, mm. right? Then you're dependent on there's not being any um, any uh, isolationist policies coming from that country. So right? uh, just to offer a brief pushback here, is this the perfect analogy? Would you say the dependency on minerals for the, the production of renewable energy is uh, as heavy as... Um, we rely on oil today in every uh, facet of society and renewables in the current shape is we're talking about solar and wind right yeah. and and to some extent hydro yes and you're saying the the fact that it's a leveraged play on the key minerals that these mm -hmm. countries poses the new geopolitical threat right now I don't think uh, it's perfectly analogous because <clears throat> sorry it's more pushed into the future the problem is pushed more into the future right but the thing is um these countries then have the ability to choke off that energy transition plan if these uh, something happens in any of these countries then we can forget about the whole energy transition and mm. then where does that leave us in terms of uh, of mm. climate and everything mm. now so so that's that's the risk um, it's not necessarily that, um, you know, uh, this country that holds this mineral can then choke off that country economically. It's just that country then has to keep on with their fossil fuel hmm. uh, production and burning. Seems like uh, renewables has a far more complicated supply chain than uh, the oil industry, right? Uh, so, so it kind of reminds me of the beginning of COVID when 
you see all these supply chain disruptions. Yes. Um, we could have a similar um, extent of disruption coming from um, political players, uh, coming from different uh, military frictions yes. that cause the progress to uh, transition to this world um, on pulse. Mm. So that's a risk, right? That's a risk. Yeah. So what happens if there is a conflict over Taiwan, for instance? Are we then just putting the whole energy transition on, on hold? Or can we find alternative sources for our materials production? Can we, um, can we bring some of that refining capacity back home? Is there political willingness to do that? There should be if you really are serious about your, your, um, your climate change um, prevention ambitions. Mm. Um, but you don't see much of that yet. And that's that's worrying. Mm-hmm. So um, I think again we've covered a lot of grounds today, and uh, but usually I I end the podcast on the on the hopeful note. Okay. Um, then uh, you brought up the the wrong subject. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so instead of we end on um, um, we end on conflicts, we end on all the risks. Yeah. Um, what is one thing that we can look forward to? Uh, on the topic of decarbonization. Um. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about the risks. Uh, I've talked a lot about uh, the, the problems that we see today. But I think uh, I also mentioned that, um, you know, as an energy company, you need to be open for all new solutions. And, you know, there's this saying that, you know, we tend to um, underestimate what comes in the next decades, right? And I think, um, you know, there might be some technological breakthrough that makes all of this void. Maybe we find some material that uh, that uh, is much better suited for batteries. For instance, we can make super good batteries instead of uh, the, the minerals we use today. Or we have uh, an energy source like, for instance, uh, fusion power. If we get fusion power to work, everything of this is uh, is void. Right. Uh, I, we have I, Then we have a self-sustaining energy source that would produce uh, in the in the same way as the, the sun is producing energy every day. Right? Yeah. And we've managed to scale this, then um, you know, we're, we're at a really interesting point. And of course, then we go back to, okay, but electricity can't solve anything. But, you know, taking it back a step further, then you can uh, you can just make some green hydrogen, for instance, from, from that uh, electricity process. And then, then you can use that in your, your industrial purposes. So yeah. that's something that at least uh, I would be very hopeful about that and, process. And definitely be on the on the watch out for these news. I think yes. as recent as a few months ago, I read the on the topic of fusion, it, ha- it was successfully uh, executed in the laboratory environment. Yeah. Last right? week, they had their second successful uh, run where they got net positive energy. So that is uh, that's a breakthrough step, and uh, Equinor is actually through its uh, venture fund. It's uh, also invested in in some of this uh, uh, some of these startups as well. So uh, we have some vested interest in it as well. Okay, definitely exciting news, mm. and uh, um, I think given uh, all we've discussed today, I think we have a very good overview of the current state. Um, state of the union with the European energy market, the role of Equinor, and what are the uh, strategies pursuing to decarbonize, but also on the flip side, what are the different challenges. Um, 
So again, thank you, Jonas, for a very educational um, hour for me, and I think a lot of uh, my listeners will take away um, different knowledges to go home with. So thank you again for coming on the show, Jonas. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to keep the discussion going.